the country reacts to former President Donald Trump's historic indictment. I guess my concern is how much it divides the country, rightfully or wrongfully. So what comes next? A panel of NPR reporters weighs in. For Saturday, April 1st, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Also this hour, more people are using AI to create art. Should their works be copyrighted? The central question at the end of the day is the extent to which a human being had creative control over the work's expressive elements. And it's now April, but we're still living March Madness. We check in on the high-scoring NCAA women's basketball tournament. The level of play is good and, and fun to watch, and it just it speaks for itself. You know, you have all these people tuning in now. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. At least 21 people are dead across the South and Midwest after a major storm yesterday that brought tornadoes to several states. Rescue crews are searching for people who may still be trapped under the rubble. George Hale from member station WFIU has more from western Indiana. First responders in Sullivan, Indiana, are battling heavy winds as they search for residents who remain missing after a suspected tornado struck the city. Mayor Clint Lamb is urging residents to stay where they are until an emergency management unit from the U.S. Army Reserve arrives to evaluate structures. And we are asking, do not deploy on your own. Numerous buildings in the southern part of the city are in ruins, among them Sullivan's local VFW, which sustained heavy damage. Powerful winds also lifted a retired helicopter that was displayed outside. It crashed into pieces nearby. For NPR News, I'm George Hale in Sullivan, Indiana. Former President Donald Trump is scheduled to appear in criminal court in Manhattan on Tuesday. This after being indicted by a Manhattan grand jury this week over hush money paid to an adult film star. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. The indictment is still under seal, so we don't know what the actual charges are. We don't know how many counts there are in this indictment. Uh, And we don't know all of the evidence that the district attorney's office has gathered over what's been uh, several years of investigating. Uh, I spoke with Harry Sandick about this. He's a former federal prosecutor, now defense attorney in New York. And he said that while we don't know the charges and the full legal theory of the DA's case here, we do know that Michael Cohen appears to be an important government witness. And Sandick points out that, look, Cohen is a tricky witness. And that's because Cohen himself has pleaded guilty to federal crimes. NPR's Ryan Lucas reporting. Trump's attorneys say he is innocent and that he will fight this case. Trump has lashed out against this indictment on his social media platform. And many House Republicans, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, have also spoken out against this action. Trump is also running for president in 2024. The New Mexico Supreme Court is suspending local ordinances limiting abortion access. From member station KUNM, Alice Fordham reports it's legal in New Mexico, but some conservative cities and counties had adopted their own restrictions. The New Mexico Supreme Court is responding to a writ from State Attorney General Raul Torres contending that the local ordinances are unlawful and should be blocked. The court has agreed to hear the case and has ordered the local ruling suspended pending its outcome. The three cities and two counties that passed the ordinances consulted with a Texan right to life group when they wrote the rules, citing a 19th century federal law. An attorney for that group, Jonathan Mitchell, has said he will support the local authorities if they decide to fight the legal challenge. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. 
The Massachusetts Attorney General is agreeing to pay a $40 million settlement to officers who say they missed out on opportunities to be promoted to sergeant because of a racist exam. The deal settles a decades-long lawsuit against the state. 600 black and Hispanic officers claimed the civil service sergeant's promotional exam discriminated against them. Hundreds of officers involved in the lawsuit say that led to delays and missed promotions. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is trying to remove another hurdle for trans and non-binary people. Presley introduced the Name Accuracy and Credit Reporting Act yesterday on Transgender Day of Visibility. The measure would prevent credit reporting agencies from including a person's former name on a credit report after they have legally changed their name. My bill will improve accuracy in consumer reporting and increase access to housing, jobs, and credit for transgender and non-binary people by preventing their unfair denials that result after a name change. Presley says credit reporting agencies already do this for other people when they get married and change their name. The New England Aquarium today launched a cruise to give people an up-close view of marine wildlife while highlighting local conservation efforts. That includes work to protect critically endangered North Atlantic right whales. Laura Howes is the Director of Research and Education for Boston Harbor City Cruises. They operate the trips. She says people will be able to spot seals, porpoises, and seabirds, and more. There's also a rich kind of ecological history of all the outer islands in Boston Harbor. It is a national park area. And so, yeah, it's a really good appreciation for spring and the Boston coastline. The EcoVenture cruise runs through mid-May. First Lady Jill Biden will visit Southern Maine Community College on Wednesday. She'll also visit Beta Technologies in Burlington, Vermont, an aerospace technology company. It's part of the administration's Investing in America tour. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at aecf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Next week, for the first time in American history, a former president is scheduled to appear in court to face criminal charges. Donald Trump will hear the details of the charges the Manhattan District Attorney has filed against him. He's expected to be fingerprinted and posed for a mugshot, too. All of this is new territory. America's reactions to it, though, well, that feels pretty familiar. Wow. There is justice. It really does exist. I think it's just nonsense. I, I really do. They, because he's Republican, the media hates Republicans. A lot of the country hates Republicans. And it would be nice if they would show the same fairness to Democrats when they do something wrong. He's constantly playing with fire and thinks he can get away with it. He pays people off. He threatens people. He bullies people. He lies to people. He lies to more. He hires lawyers to lie. And he gets away with it. And not this time. The law should be applied fairly. And if he is innocent, he'll get his day in court. Nobody's above the law in the end. So uh, if he did the, the wrong deeds, he should face the law and pay the price. I couldn't believe that such a travesty of justice was occurring in America. I mean, it's ridiculous. I guess my concern is how much it divides the country, rightfully or wrongfully. Those voices from New Jersey, Florida, and here in Washington, D.C. show how Donald Trump still animates his large base of supporters and still angers millions of others. 
You have heard this before, and you will hear it again before Trump likely appears in court Tuesday. We still do not know exactly what charges Trump is facing. We do know that they stem from evidence presented to the grand jury that Trump paid a former adult film actress to keep an alleged affair between them secret. So what comes next? I talked about it this week on the NPR Politics Podcast with NPR's national justice correspondent, Kerry Johnson, and Domenico Montanaro, NPR's senior political editor and correspondent. I started by asking Domenico how the two impeachment trials that Trump has already faced might give us a sense of what the coming political climate might be like. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've seen this book over and over again. I mean, yes, this is historic. It's a big deal. But the thing that Trump most wants and the left most wants are the same thing. A picture of him in handcuffs, a photo that's released, a mugshot, because Trump can use that to raise money, fire up his base. He's done a tremendous job politically in insulating himself, at least when it comes to a Republican primary and with his base. The opposite, though, is true when it comes to everybody else, as his brand has become increasingly toxic. But everybody else are, I mean, by and large, the people who put Joe Biden in the White House, right? He made a calculated political push to focus on moderates, on independents. Yeah. I guess we don't really have a sense how the, the trial of not only a former president, but a presidential candidate, if it gets to that point, could play out with, with that large, large pool of voters. No, I mean, look, the stakes are super high here, not just for the New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg personally, but also politically, because there's a big difference between an indictment and a conviction. And, you know, Trump has been pushing this idea that this is politically motivated. There's some evidence in polling that people believe him. And it's not the case with potentially the largest or most serious uh, peril for Trump. You know, there are three other criminal cases. And if Bragg is not able to secure a conviction here, that'll just play into the Trump narrative. We've seen him even when a majority of senators voted for his impeachment, he mm -hmm. claimed vindication. He did that even when the Mueller investigation uh, in looking into his role uh, with uh, Russia in his campaign, that he didn't exonerate him, yet Trump still declared vindication. So anything short of, of a conviction, you can guarantee that's what Trump's playbook is going to be. There have been a lot of threats against the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, and there's also been this clear focus of Republican officials responding to these charges of attacking him and criticizing him and saying that this is partisan and saying this is all about charging the frontrunner for the 2024 Republican nomination. So, Kerry, what has his response been to these attacks? You know, a lawyer working for D.A. Alvin Bragg sent a quite strong letter to House Republican chairman, including Jim Jordan of Ohio, saying uh, it seems like you're collaborating with the former president and acting more like his criminal defense attorneys than uh, a legislative body trying to make policy or new laws. And basically, Bragg says your incursion, your attempted incursion into my ongoing investigation of Donald Trump is unjustified unprecedented and unnecessary. Bragg says that he will answer some questions, but he wants to know what the congressman really want to know. And earlier they had asked him about whether he used any federal funds to try to prosecute Donald Trump. Well, he said, in fact, a very, very small amount of money Something like $5,000 might have been spent mostly in the Supreme Court uh, litigation that the former president brought under uh, the previous Manhattan DA. But Bragg is not giving any ground in a lot of this, uh, this friction with House GOP chairman, I think, will continue. Carrie, does the fact that other charges might come in other investigations affect this case moving forward? 
I don't think it does. Uh, normally, the federal government and state authorities do try to coordinate on some matters. I don't think there has been much coordination here, in part because of the fear of leaks and Attorney General Merrick Garland's policy of basically being very protective of sensitive information. In fact, I asked the AG recently about the political calendar, the idea that uh, the first GOP debate is coming up in August of this year, and whether the special counsel, Jack Smith, would be done by then. He said he didn't know. He wasn't keeping close enough tabs on what Jack Smith was doing day to day. But obviously, there are a lot of fights going on in the federal courthouse with the former president asserting all kinds of legal privileges and mostly losing those fights. That's part of why this investigation is taking a while is because Trump keeps putting forward arguments about executive privilege and attorney-client privilege and all kinds of other things. But he appears to have mostly lost those battles. Stepping back, we have operated in this world for, you know, at least 50 years for sure that presidents just aren't charged with crimes. And part of that is the Justice Department's memo that we talked so much about during the Trump administration about charging current presidents with crimes. But that's not in the law. And I think a broader part of it is the fact that Gerald Ford made a decision to pardon Richard Nixon to head off any sort of criminal prosecution of a former president. I mean, this this seems to be blowing that all up. This is this is a new world going forward. This is something that's going to happen. Well, certainly we know from the district attorney Alvin Bragg's mouth himself that the former president has been charged in New York. We're still waiting to see what the exact nature of those charges are. And also the strength, the strength of that legal case is still an open question. That said, um, that bridge has been crossed now and we can't uncross it. And so while it was controversial in the moment for uh, Ford to pardon Nixon over the years, a lot of people understood that as being kind of a healing measure. It could go on and on and on, or someone must write the end to it. I have concluded that only I can do that. And if I can, I must. With the uh, rise of Donald Trump and some of the uh, violations of norms and alleged violations of laws we saw both before he entered the White House and during his time in the White House, a lot of people have come to question the wisdom of that Justice Department memo, which basically says the federal government can't prosecute a sitting president. Um, you know, the Justice Department, to my knowledge, has not reevaluated that position. That is still the case. The thing that's different is that Donald Trump is not the president now, but he's trying to be the president again. And Scott, you know, he's already pledged on the campaign trail to pardon uh, people convicted in connection with January 6th, in connection with the beating up of police officers on January 6th, the storming of the Capitol. So this story is not even remotely over. We're just at the beginning in some ways. Domenico, on one hand, I feel like this I, I keep seeing the phrase taboo of, of charging a current or former president. Maybe there's a better term for it. But I feel like so much of that has to go with the, the, the power and the symbolism of the office, right? So you have that on one hand, and then on the other hand, you have the particular former president of Donald Trump who seems to be telling everyone who comes across that he can't wait to be handcuffed and perp-walked for the street. He's fundraising off of this. He's, you know, last week holding a rally where he plays songs by people in jail because of January 6th. So he certainly seems to be all about the spectacle that's going to happen uh, over the next few months. Trump loves pushing the envelope, right? And I think that you could argue that what Gerald Ford did in pardoning Richard Nixon, you know, 
while it was unpopular at the time and became a bit more popular or understandable, you have a president now or a former president now who pushes the limits and pushes uh, the line of what's acceptable. But really, Ford wound up opening a Pandora's box a bit mm -hmm. to being able to say, okay, you know, let's see how far someone who could come in the coming decades could go. You know, and the thing is, we're unique to this in this country because other democracies have certainly had their leaders charged with crimes and, you know, fairly recently. I mean, in Israel, yeah. you've had two prime ministers, including the one who's serving currently, who's right. facing charges. France has had a couple who've uh, faced, you know, embezzlement and other charges. So Brazil, Lula was, was charged, went to jail, came back, is also now the current president. Yeah. And this is something that is just, I think, hard for Americans to cross this threshold of to realize and see because of the way it's always been. But Trump is, again, somebody who just, you know, continues to see how far he can go with something, how far he can take it, because, you know, there's nothing crossing him out from, you know, facing charges, even being convicted and running for president still. That was NPR's senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro and national justice correspondent Carrie Johnson speaking with me on the NPR Politics Podcast. You can hear it every weekday wherever you listen to podcasts. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, we'll chat with the former Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. His office initiated the probe into Trump's hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels. We'll talk to Vance about the historic indictment, what led to this moment, and what we can expect going forward. We hope you'll tune in on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, how to protect yourself from scams, whether they're on the phone, by text, or email. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington now through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. 62 degrees, partly sunny in Boston at 518. WBUR supporters include BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. And the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American art from the Spanish Empire. Free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Powerful storms and tornadoes across six southern and midwestern states last night left nearly two dozen people dead, dozens more injured, and many homes and businesses damaged or destroyed. Hundreds of thousands are without power across the regions. Former President Donald Trump is expected to appear in a Manhattan courtroom next week after a Manhattan grand jury indicted him in connection with hush money payments to an adult film star. He says he's innocent. Pope Francis was released from the hospital today after spending several days receiving treatment for bronchitis. The Vatican says Francis will preside over Palm Sunday services in St. Peter's Basilica tomorrow and Holy Week services, too. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen is expected to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week in California. Last year, then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan caused a major escalation in tensions between the U.S. and China. So the big question is whether another meeting with another House Speaker will make things even worse. China sees the self-governing island democracy as a part of China, and it's warned of consequences if any U.S. officials meet with Taiwan's president. Jessica Chen Weiss is a professor of China and Asia-Pacific Studies at Cornell University, and she joins us now to talk about how this visit by Taiwan's president will impact the already fraught relations between Washington and Beijing. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Let's just give some of the context here. Why does China view this meeting as a provocation? China objects to any form of high-level contact between the United States and Taiwan because to China, looks like the United States is on the cusp of restoring official diplomatic relations, which we ceased as a condition of normalizing relations with China in the late 1970s. And so the sitting speaker, in this case, Kevin McCarthy, his meeting with President Tsai again, suggests that the United States is moving, at least in Beijing's eyes, toward a policy of supporting Taiwan's permanent separation or even independence. I mean, there's been a lot of dynamics that have increased tension. I mean, among other things, President Biden, uh, I cover the White House, and I have repeatedly covered him committing in the moment to U.S. defense of Taiwan if China were to invade. And then the White House says, oh, he didn't he didn't really mean it. He didn't change the policy. Then he says it again and again and again. And, and that clearly has made an impact here. But amid all of the various dynamics, how big of a deal was Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year? Pelosi's visit was really significant. You know, it was the first time that a speaker had visited in like 25 years. And it occasioned the most aggressive Chinese military response that we have seen in and around Taiwan to date. And in particular, Chinese PLA, People's Liberation Army, no longer sort of respecting that median line down the center of the Taiwan Strait and regularly moving across it. And so, you know, while this was not a dress rehearsal for an invasion, it nonetheless further eroded the status quo uh, in the Taiwan Strait. And I think it's going to be hard for uh, Beijing to not respond to this interaction between the anticipated meeting between Speaker McCarthy and President Tsai, because they fear that if they don't act to deter what they see as you know creeping moves toward independence, then they will just invite even further provocations. Given what's happened in the past, what sort of military response do you expect after Tsai and McCarthy meet? I hope that it's not much more than we have seen, which is, again, these largely symbolic maneuvers in the Taiwan Strait. You might see further incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Hopefully this will be a small, not significant 
response. And I think that the Chinese government does need to, you know, thread the needle between registering their displeasure and provoking some kind of full-blown crisis because they still face a lot of challenges at home, you know, right. domestically in the economy. What's the value of these meetings to Tsai and Taiwan to risk this provocation? Well, look, I think Taiwan feels increasingly isolated on the international stage as, you know, Beijing, ever since Tsai Ing-wen took office in 2016, you know, has increasingly stolen Taiwan's diplomatic allies, uh, has increased its campaign of economic and military coercion. And so for Taiwan, uh, you know, important purpose of this kind of international travel is to rally support. And it was, I think it was important that, you know, Tsai emphasized that this support should be economic, not just military. And that, you know, a key aspect of bolstering Taiwan's resilience to coercion from mainland China, you know, runs through increasing economic partnership and other kinds of ties that would make the island more vibrant and robust to Chinese intimidation. If it were up to you, what would you recommend that both the U.S. and China do in this moment to kind of lower the temperature here? So it's critical that both Beijing, Washington and Taipei find ways to lower the temperature, not just rhetorically, although that's an important step, but also in terms of finding ways mutually back from the brink by reducing and setting guardrails in terms of the actions that each side uh, is taking that frankly, is contributing to this escalatory action-reaction spiral. And that's difficult, but there's really no substitute if we want to avert what I see as an avoidable crisis or conflict that is looming, especially over Taiwan, but also in the whole variety of domains where we see increasing pressure on the international system, international institutions that are no longer operating effectively because the United States and, and China are at loggerheads. So finding ways not only to lower the temperature will also, I think, create more space politically and time and attention resources to tackling shared challenges like the green energy transition and climate change. Mm -hmm. Jessica Chen Weiss is a professor of China and Asia Pacific Studies at Cornell University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We wanted to spend some time talking and thinking about artificial intelligence, which is the process of using machines to mimic human intelligence. By now, you may have heard about the debates that AI technology like ChatGPT have brought up when it comes to plagiarism, but it's also raised questions in another area. Copyright law protects works of authorship, and that uh, includes books or movies, music, sound recordings, and works of art. The copyright protection gives the author exclusive rights to make certain uses of those works. That's Shira Perlmutter, who directs the U.S. Copyright Office. She says authorship is central to securing a copyright in the U.S., and right now that means human authorship. But Perlmutter is seeing more artists trying to protect AI-generated work. One of the early cases claimed copyright protection in a work that the applicant said was generated entirely by a computer called the Creativity Machine. And we rejected the application. We said it could not be registered because uh, in the applicant's own representations to us, there was no human authorship involved in the creation process. Perlmutter admits that this brings up tricky questions and that has real effects on artists looking to copyright their intellectual property. 
That's why her office has launched an initiative to learn more about AI-generated art and use that to issue new guidance. We want to learn as much as we can, as quickly as we can, and to help people along the way to ensure that they're able to uh, protect their rights in the new environment and also able to enjoy the benefits that the new technology offers to them. We wanted to get perspective from someone who actually uses AI technology to create art and how they think about these types of questions. So we called the anonymous digital artist who goes by the name Claire Silver. She's been pretty successful. She's used AI technology to help create her piece called Blood in the Streets, Late to the Ball. The physical piece of art was sold at auction in London for more than 40,000 pounds with an exclusive digital NFT going to the buyer. And she joins me now to share her thoughts and perspectives on art, AI, and what counts as authorship. Claire Silver, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I guess I've always wanted to say this, if that's your real name, which... <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it might be. <laughs> what, what can you tell us about yourself? Well, I can tell you that I am from a small cornfield in a flyover state, um, that I like being anonymous. Uh, I remember I watched Harry Potter when I was a kid, and I was so mad that Daniel Radcliffe did not look like how I pictured him in my head yeah. uh, as Harry Potter. And I would like to spare anyone that is a fan by just letting them imagine me how they would like to. <laughs> Listen, as a radio person, I, I relate to that. So many people are like, you don't look like I thought you looked like. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell us about how you, how you started your career as an artist and when you started working with AI. I had a prior career in something unrelated. I got hit with a chronic life-changing illness and that ended that prior career, kind of sulked for a couple of years chronically online and started searching for art and AI. Found a website called GAN Breeder, now called Art Breeder, which was one of the early accessible no-code AI tools anyone could use. Mm -hmm. I made maybe 40,000 images in, I don't know, a week, just constantly 14 hours a day, wouldn't sleep, wouldn't eat, just obsessed. And then curated those down to maybe 20 and then shared a few of them on social media, unsure if anyone would see them as art like I did. And slowly people started to. Um, so I've just kind of been on a journey since then. Can you explain, I know it's probably different each time you make a new thing, but can you explain how the AI comes comes into it and either a hypothetical artwork or maybe a specific piece of artwork that, that, that you recently put together to help us understand what exactly we're talking about here when we talk about collaborating with AI, as you call it? Yeah, it's sort of different each time because it's dependent on the tools and the tools are constantly evolving. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was all curation. It was choose an image that AI has made that you like and then sort of crossbreed it uh, like gardening plants or something um, with another image to make something you like and then kind of make a lineage down from there until you get something you love. Uh, then it was painting into it uh, by hand with transparent layers and using text. So you would type what you would want the part of the image that you highlighted to change into. And I would kind of do this glazing technique that way, low opacity layers. Now I've worked a lot with training my own models. So that means you feed it your own images or images that you've made with AI and it learns what art is based on what you've given it. And so everything that that model makes looks like work that you've given it in some way. I'd love to get your response to some of the criticism that's out there. And I think by explaining in intricate detail how you create some of this artwork, I think you partially answered this first question. But what do you say to people who say, if you're using technology, if you're using AI, you're not an author, the, the coding is doing the work for you? 
Yeah, well, the first thing that needs to be understood is that there's a fundamental misconception on how AI works. People think that it searches the internet, say ArtStation, for example, which is a very big website for artists, and kind of pulls pieces, like collages pieces together by stealing um, to create an image that's kind of a, a collage, a photo bash of those things. That's not how it works. How it works is it learns traits about things the same way that our minds do. And then it kind of combines all those traits together to make something new. So for example, if I were to type that I wanted, I don't know, a, a cyber noir landscape um, with figures by John Singer Sargent, it doesn't take pieces of Sargent paintings and put them together to make something new. It learns that Sargent often paints figures that figures have two hands with five fingers, that fingers bend at joints, that joints work like this, and that Sargent often paints them with this sort of brushstroke or that quality of lighting. And it takes all of those things that it's learned and it creates something new, which I think is how our minds work. I think that's how influences work in general. Um, so maybe that's a fine line of distinction for a lot of people. For me, it makes the morality of things very clear. But I think it, it just mimics our brain, but because it's so efficient, People assume that it's stealing. And the Copyright Office is seeking public comment right now as, as it tries to come up with the guidance for issuing copyrights. Is there anything else you would, you would want to tell somebody who's trying to, to come up with the rules here? I would say to please speak with the people who are making these systems. A mod of Stability AI is a good example. Um, to understand exactly how they work and exactly the role of data uh, in the process and understand that we're at the point where AI can read images from MRI brain scans and reinterpret them as similar images. I don't see how traditional copyright will be able to hold up in the coming decade with technology like that. I think you need to rethink how we look at influence, how we look at authorship. And there are a lot of people that are very passionate about helping you do that. In order to not fall behind other countries, I think that uh, it's important that you do. That was the anonymous digital artist who goes by the name Claire Silver talking to us about her use of AI technology in the development of her art. Claire Silver, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was an honor. You're listening to NPR News. Major League Baseball looks a bit different this weekend. Big rule changes went into effect as the season began this week, including a pitch clock aimed to speed up games. Baseball is also trying to counter the statistical revolution that has led to fewer hits and more strikeouts. It's barring what's known as the shift, the practice of clumping infielders together where certain batters are most likely to hit the ball. Now, two infielders need to stay on each side of second base, just like the old times. There are other new rules, too, all aimed at drawing younger fans to the game. And that's a gamble, though, because if there's one thing baseball fans love, it's tradition. To see what fans are thinking, we decided to leave the studio and head to the stadium. We went a couple miles south of NPR to Nationals Park on opening day. This is science class, but... Oh, come on, before your teacher yeah. hears this! <laughs> 
That's 11-year-old Bryce Blinstrub and his mom, Beth. Bryce plays baseball, and he's got thoughts on the shift. I think that could help a lot because uh, it would be help just to keep them in the same position, like keep baseball as it was and as it should be. Do your teams ever shift in Little League? Uh, no, we do not. We we like to keep it same as the new MOB rule. A lot of fans we talked to were like Mac Jones, baseball fans who worry the game's gotten too slow and stale for their kids to love it the same way that they do. You never complained about a game being too fast. That's a good point. <laughs> so you're on board? It can't hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially for these little ones. Yeah. If you want them, you want them interested in the game, it can't take four hours. The younger they are, the, long, the more they want to be on devices and do different things. And baseball's a game that takes very long. Once the game got underway, we headed across the street to one of the bars surrounding Nationals Park. We're at Dacha. It's an outdoor beer garden with big screen TV showing the game and a, and a bar made out of an Airstream trailer. There's fire pits because it is a little bit chilly as it sometimes is on opening day. It just feels weird, you know, like all growing up, going to Nationals games here and playing Little League and travel ball and high school ball. It just, you know, the clock was never something you had to worry about and kind of feels chaotic in my opinion. Henry Raymond was one of the few people we talked to who isn't into the new pitch clock. Kelly McGuire and her friends were hesitant too for different reasons. The group all works in construction. They go to about 10 games a year together, but they're at the park to network and have fun. I think it's exciting because it's gonna make the game more exciting. It's gonna make it go quicker. And she said, she's mad it's gonna make the game go quicker. Cause... So I enjoy it. Like I wanna be out for longer, you know? I don't want it to end faster. So for you, hanging out at a baseball stadium for three hours is the point. Yes. At a nearby table, Ted Atwood and Owen Hopkins were in deep discussion. Pitchcock? Yeah. Major pro. Not even close. Personally, con. I think if you're at baseball, part of the experience is just hanging out with your friends and being there. Ted, it's still like a two and a half hour game with the yeah. Pitchcock. Yeah, and you're there for the two and a half hour game. And you have a great time. Those two couldn't even agree about arguably the least controversial change, the bigger bases. Let them have their bases. Let Wait, you want bigger bases or smaller let them, bases? Let them be bigger. No, no, they let shouldn't be bigger. bigger. They shouldn't. It makes it too easy. Let them, let them have it. They're big enough it's as more is. Home runs. It's more moments. You're no. there for three and a half hours. No, 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 no. If so maybe bigger, the rules are a good it, thing. Because to paraphrase a just, famous it, baseball quote, a, the one constant through all the years you know, you is that baseball fans love to argue. The higher the score, the more fun the fans are having. I don't see an issue here. I think you're soft. NPR News. I'm Susan Levy. This is 90.9 WBUR. So glad you're with us. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, how to protect yourself from scams, whether they're on the phone, text, or email. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Join host Tiziana Deering on Thursday, April 6th at City Space for a beer fest. It's part of Radio Boston's Brewed in Mass series, which explores our local beer culture. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. A chance of rain tonight becoming sunny tomorrow, 62 degrees in Boston at 539.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The New Mexico Supreme Court is suspending local ordinances limiting abortion access. While the procedure is legal in the state, some conservative cities and counties had adopted their own restrictions. The Minneapolis City Council has approved a settlement with the state of Minnesota to revamp its police department. The state had accused the police department of engaging in a pattern of racial discrimination, this nearly three years after a police officer murdered George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for more than nine minutes. And in March, Madness play men's games continue tonight, and tomorrow is the title game in the women's NCAA college basketball with LSU facing Iowa. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. The women's side of the NCAA college basketball tournament has been electric this year. Millions of fans are tuning in, and ticket sales for the Final Four have been hot. Last night, Angel Reese and LSU knocked off number one seed Virginia Tech 79-72. And then in an instant classic, Caitlin Clark and the Iowa Hawkeyes stunned national champion South Carolina and its star player, Aaliyah Boston, 77-73. Joining us now to recap all the action is Lindsay D'Arcangelo, who writes for The Athletic and Just Women's Sports and is also the co-author of Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we need to start with that Iowa-South Carolina game last night. South Carolina had won 42 straight games. They won it all last year. They seemed unbeatable. That's not what happened. No, it's not what happened. And Iowa just had an incredible game plan. They were able to go up against South Carolina's height and length by just crowding the paint and then forcing South Carolina to beat them from the outside or with mid-range jumpers, and it worked to perfection. I mean, Caitlin Clark has been the star of the tournament, the Iowa player who once again for the second game in a row scored 41 points last night. That's right after her 41-point triple-double in the Elite Eight. She's making three-pointers from the half-court logo can you put it per- into perspective this run and just how great of a player she's become? Caitlin Clark is, I mean, you just summed it up right there. But what I love about her game this season especially is just how efficient she's gotten. She's a high-volume shooter, but her shooting percentage this season and, and efficiency have just been off the charts. But it's also how she sees the floor, how she gets her teammates involved, and how she just uplifts the play of, of everyone around her. I believe she scored or assisted on every single point in in the fourth quarter of the game against South Carolina. And 
I think for the tournament, she's assisted or scored on 58%, I think the number is, on all of Iowa's points. It's just incredible what kind of an impact she has on the game. It feels to me like it wasn't that long ago that the big story from the women's tournament was how you know paltry their weight rooms and other facilities were compared to the men's. And then, and then that you have this weekend... Tickets for the women's Final Four are selling at, at far higher prices than the men's games. Millions of people are tuning in to watch these games on ESPN. What does this moment say to you about the growing popularity of the women's game? I'm a huge women's sports advocate, not just in basketball, but across the board. But it just goes to show you the time we're living in right now. I and mean, the popularity of women's sports is con- continuing to grow uh, there's never been a better time to invest in women's sports, and, and we're seeing that play out. And the other aspect is that, you know, putting the games, accessibility is huge too, putting the games where people can see them. Obviously, ESPN, I think this is the third year in a row that they've put the games, uh, every game in the tournament on television. And you've seen the numbers just jump year over year, and it's, it's only going to increase from here. This, I mean, for a casual fan like me, these past few weeks have felt like kind of an explosion and a coming out party. Has this been a long trend from your from your point of view of of, of kind of this excitement growing and, and more and more people tuning in and, and momentum here? It's definitely been a, a, a growing trend. I want to say within the past five years, especially. But you know, I've seen it. I've seen it just get the excitement, uh, the coverage. Uh, the amount of people talking uh, about women's college basketball just has grown year over year, and it, it just continues to explode. And the talent is there. You know, the parity in the game is getting better. You're not just having one school dominate, and the level of play is good and, and fun to watch, and it just it speaks for itself. You know, you have all these people tuning in now. And you, you've, been, you've been writing previews all tournament for The Athletic. How are you feeling about tomorrow's game, Iowa-LSU with a championship on the line? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting matchup. Both of these teams do, do some things really well and, and do them differently. Uh, for LSU, it, it's rebounding and, and getting in the paint. For Iowa, it's, it's their uh, outside shooting and, and their passing and their ability to get in transition. So it's going to be it's interesting to see how these, these two teams uh, match up on the court. But um, had to go with Iowa. You know, they have they have just more offense and, and Caitlin Clark. It's hard to beat that at this at this point in time, it, it seems like. It's hard to beat that. <laughs> Lindsay Darkangelo, sports writer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Love talking basketball. Color me hopeful, but we have heard about a new kind of paint that holds the potential to cut airline fuel usage and make our homes and communities cooler. How? Well, some of the brightest and most beautiful colors in nature can only be replicated using heavy metals and chemicals. And those paints absorb infrared radiation, making objects covered in them much hotter. But Debashi Chanda, a nanoscience researcher with the University of Central Florida, has created a way to mimic nature's way of reflecting colors without absorbing heat. It's the same way a rainbow is created after it rains. Chanda's research looks at why structural colors, as they're called, may be the future of paint and how altering the way light is reflected off surfaces could help cool a rapidly warming environment. All colors actually come from some kind of pigments which absorb light. Uh, butterflies, birds, and a lot of fish, octopuses, they actually can create color based on structure. In all the man-made color, we use a lot of artificially synthesized organic molecules, lots of metal. Now think about your deep blue, need a cobalt, and a deep red needs a 
cadmium none of those material are friendly they are toxic we are polluting the our nature and our uh, whole habitat uh, by using these kind of paints so the one of the major motivation was to create a color based on um, non-toxic material it's not just cleaner structural paint is also lighter a raisin's worth of structural paint is enough to cover the front and back of a door if you could reduce the paint weight which covers the aircrafts, then actually we make them more fuel efficient uh, and save significant amount of cost. Lighter, cooler, the application seemed endless. The paint could reduce the temperature of the surfaces of cars and even buildings by as much as 30 degrees. This cooling effect is uh, extremely important to uh, for energy savings. Uh, reducing CO2 footprint, uh, addressing some sort of global warming. Uh, so this gives a another passive tool that you can actually start covering surfaces with this kind of paint, which satisfies our need for color, but also it keeps the surface cooler. Structural paint is still in its early days and mostly being used in the lab. Its potential hasn't been tapped yet. Paint is one of the largest thing we consume because everything we're looking around us has to be painted, everything. So that means we need such a big volume of paint. Our near-term and long-term goal will be to make it um, scalable uh, at a reasonably lower cost. That was Debashish Chanda, a nanoscientist at the University of Central Florida. It's April, and that means it's time for one of our favorite things here at All Things Considered, poetry. Today is the start of National Poetry Month, and every April we celebrate by asking our listeners to submit Twitter poems that we might read on air. And this year, to get things started, we have called renowned poet Nikki Finney. She won the National Book Award for her collection, Head Off and Split, and she is here to kick off National Poetry Month. Welcome back to NPR. Hey, thank you, Scott. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to be back. When did you first fall in love with poetry? Oh, maybe when I first heard another human's voice. I think that, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know the, the, the detail of the answer to that question. I do know that for me, the orality of language, what I can hear, I, I often remember staring at somebody's mouth when they were talking. I feel like I came from a family of storytellers. I came from a community of storytellers and there was always language in the air and there was always rhythm in that air. And there was always, there was a quiet voice or a louder voice or laughter. And I think that brought me directly to poetry. I love that answer because my infant daughter is just starting to to make sounds and mimic our speaking patterns. And I wonder so much what is going on in her, her head as she's trying to repeat what she's hearing and what she thinks of all of this. Yes. And before, Scott, she gets corrected. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. part of my journey as a poet with gray hair is to remember those moments that were just wondrous, that I kind of wandered through, you know, as a new human being with language and things around me you know, we get we get our children into these training zones, right? Like this is correct and this isn't correct. And no, you can't say walk me to the distance. You have to say walk me to the tree. And those kind of wondrous moments that I think mean so much to me as a poet and a curious mind get trampled 
unfortunately. So I'm I'm always looking for ways to untrample those footsteps and those that's wrong and that's right because I think part of the journey of being a poet for one's life is surprise. That's interesting because I feel like so many students think about poetry or taught poetry as a system of rules. It has to rhyme. You have to do the couplets. You have to do this. You have to do that. And you are saying the exact opposite. I'm saying the exact opposite. And I'm not saying that couplets aren't fantastic or rhyme cannot be wonderful, but I am saying that system of legislation about what's allowed is awfully wrong because there are so many wondrous things about an original mind, a creative mind that wants not to follow the path in that kind of way, but also wants to create a new sound, create a new way of saying. And so sometimes I think we, we teach our young artists and young writers off that path so that so much work begins to sound like work that's already been out there for a long time. And they are a little afraid or a lot afraid to like jump off that diving board. I like to jump off the diving board myself. It is the beginning of National Poetry Month, and one of the things we wanted to ask you to do was help us kick it off by by reading us a poem. Do you, do you mind introducing this poem, telling us a little bit about it, and, and, and reading it for us? Not at all. I wrote this poem several years ago um, when I was a visiting writer at Smith College, and they were celebrating their first Black graduate of the college. Uh, her name is Otelia Cromwell, and she was born in 1874, and she passed away in 1972. And I love uh, what I went through researching Otelia Cromwell. And the name of this poem is Maven. And I'm just going to read the first stanza because I'm that long-winded poet that never knows when to put a period at the end of something. <laughs> but I love what it says about how I'm thinking about the girls of today and 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 young women that I meet and, and what it says to them, what I want to say to them um, through nurturing their love of the arts and their love of finding out who they are. This is the first part of Maven. When you are a thinking woman, neither violence nor sugar plums can muzzle the power of thought. Imagine, hatch, comprehend, apprehend, know the inside and the out. You are just a girl when your mother dies, left to tend the rest of the flock, you, the oldest, the one most like your father, taught to leave no stone unturned, marry thrift and industry, while burying your head in the stacks. Sang-froid, but never silent, Inquire, picture, ponder, think over, think and think again. Giddy with your own mind. I love that last line, giddy with your own mind. That's what I try to do as a teacher, is to try and whoever is in front of me, male, female, other, you know, just become giddy with your own mind. Back, you know, this conversation circles back to, um, you know, getting off the path of what somebody wants you to be and being on the path of what you want yourself to be 
And becoming giddy with your own mind to me, you know, really is the first step in that direction. Well, let's let's bring some of that giddiness to others. We are going to be encouraging people to send us uh, poems on Twitter. What what advice would you have for somebody who hears that and thinks, I don't know, that that seems hard. That seems intimidating. They should uh, go stand in the mirror and 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 smile at themselves and think of a moment that made them smile back at someone, at a stranger. I was on a path this morning walking my five miles and, you know, there was somebody who was looking at me who, and I thought they were afraid, you know, they were, here's this six foot tall woman with dreadlocks coming down the, the, the path. And I just like burst into smile with her and her dog and she smiled back and it was a perfect human moment. And so do something that you've never done before with language. Do something with, that you've never done with words and and try out a few couplets, back to couplets. It doesn't have to be iambic in any way, but just like be surprised at what you can write down on the page and see how much light it gives you as a human being and then let it go. That was National Book Award winning poet Nikki Finney. Her latest collection is called Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, Poems and Artifacts. Nikki Finney, I love this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. And we would love for you to follow that advice and participate in our National Poetry Month celebration. If you'd like to hear your original poem on the air, tweet it to NPRATC with the hashtag NPRPoetry. Each week for the rest of the month, a professional poet will join us on air to talk about some of the submissions that caught their eye. <laughs> 